Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. And we are today looking at chapter 3, verse 27 through chapter 4, verse 8. And we are continuing on the theme of the contrast between boasting and faith because they are polar opposites. I got to tell you, as someone who lived in Louisiana for 10 years, I'm a little underwhelmed with this tropical storm. (laughs) But I only say that to illustrate the point that uh, I'm one-upping you. That's called boasting. (laughs) Have you ever been with someone and, and shared a story and then they told one to top your story? Didn't you just love them when they did that? Didn't you just want to hug them and tell them how much they meant to you? Well, that's getting close to what we're trying to uh, talk about and understand in this great epistle of Romans. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning as we Uh, approach the time in our service in which we sit under the preaching of the word we do ask today that you would show yourself uh, to be faithful to us in opening our ears remove all hindrances from us that would keep us from focusing upon what you are saying to us by your spirit through the word today and we do pray that you would speak to us in a very powerful, personal, uh, and uh, particular way. 
And we pray that we would not be guilty of hearing this sermon for whoever's sitting next to us or for whoever friend or neighbor we know who we would leave the place saying, I wish they could have heard that. Help us to get over that and lose that and to hear the word of God for ourselves. And we will be sure to give glory where it is due and praise where it belongs, and that is to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This concept of boasting uh, is something that is innate to being a fallen human being. Even Martin Luther struggled with it. This is a quote Luther gave regarding the concept of boasting. He says, before men, you may boast. You may say, I have done the best to everybody, and if anything is still lacking, I will supply that too. But if you want to face God, you had better cease boasting at home and see that from justice you appeal to grace. Let him who begins and try to do this, and he will see and appreciate how very difficult and hard a man who has been steeped in works righteousness all his lifetime finds it to pull himself out of this and wholeheartedly rise upward through faith in this one mediator for fully, Luther says, 20 years. I myself have now preached and practiced this with studying and writing. Therefore, I should in all fairness have come out of it. Yet, I always feel the old, uh, tenacious, vile habit. I want to haggle with God and bring something along so that he has to give me his grace in return for my holiness. It just not, sometimes does not seem right to me that I should rely so entirely in nothing but grace. And yet, it should and cannot be otherwise. The mercy seat alone must have value and permanence, for God himself has set it up. Without it, no man will ever come before God. So do you struggle with that old, pernicious, tenacious, vile habit of wanting to put God in debt to you so that he owes you something? That's what most people think on the street Christianity is, is we're trying to negotiate a relationship with God by doing good things that puts him in debt to us, and therefore he is no man's debtor. He owes me, and what does he owe me? A good life void of suffering, hardship, and trial. Well, as John Calvin would say, good luck with all of that. That does not work. That does not wash. And so today we're going to look even further regarding this concept of boasting, but we're going to change our tune because as Paul continues the discussion, he realized that his people, that is, the Israelites, the Jews, were people who made it a practice to boast in circumcision. In other words, they recognized that God had specifically chosen them, specifically set them apart, and had given them his word, his law, the Torah, the instruction. 
and that through the act and right of circumcision and through the practice of obedience to God's law, they accrued before God a right relationship. They put him in debt. That is not all, but most of the Jews regarded salvation that way. And so Paul begins to talk about the proper role and use and understanding of God's law. And so we're going to pick up with the first thing uh, having to do with the law, is the law nothing? And Paul says, the law cannot save us. The law gives us absolutely no standing or grounds for boasting, for self-worth, or for confidence. The righteousness of God and from God has been revealed, Romans 3.21, apart from the law. And when you look at the word law, it can mean several things, but in this context, it means you doing good works. You're trying to be a good person. You're trying uh, with all of your heart to lead an upright life. None of that accomplishes anything but condemnation. So when Paul poses the question in verse 31, do we then nullify the law by faith? It certainly seems that the answer so far might be yes. All that matters now is receiving faith by faith, the righteousness offered at the cross. And yet Paul answers meganoito in Greek, which means not just no, but heck no, or it means not at all. And he adds that far from making the law null and void, rather we establish or uphold the law or find ourselves using the law as God intended from the beginning. It was never God's intention to ever save anyone by keeping the law. That's not how Abraham was saved. That's not how David was saved. The two biggies in the history of Israel. We'll see more on that in a moment. But Paul is saying, as a gospel believer who's saved apart from the law, understands and loves the law more than someone who is seeking to be saved by it. Why? Why would that be true? How can this be? Because although keeping the law as a means to salvation is now and forever null and void, and always has been, as he will show in chapter 4, the law has not been set aside or its requirements change. The law of God is still there and must still be kept. It must be obeyed for anyone to ever stand before the face of God or in his presence, Coram Deo. The gospel does not declare that the law does not matter, but that it matters very much. Not little. It must be kept. And for those who have faith in Christ, it has been. In order to uh, be the Old Testament sacrifice of atonement, which provided a glimmer of Christ's death, the animals used in uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and other sacrifices had to be without blemish. Why was that? Because the ultimate sacrifice uh, of atonement, Christ himself not only 
took his people's sins upon himself and imputed his law keeping, uh, his righteousness to them. And when we put our faith in Christ, our sinfulness is given to him and he has died for it. And Christ gives us his perfect obedience to God's law and we live through it. A while ago I told you the law has to be kept, but it will never be kept by you. You cannot keep the law. Even as a believer, you cannot keep the law. Sin stains everything we do. I could be damned for the best sermon I've ever preached. I could be. It should be, probably. Because there's sin in it. There's sin in everything we do. But Christ took me out of the loop, so to speak, covenantally. And he fulfilled the covenant of works on my behalf. Christ lived. His life was sterling. No one could accuse him of sin. He was perfectly righteous in all his ways and in all his dealings. And he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself. Even to the point of giving his life as an atonement for sin. And so Christ's obedience, as I've told you, everybody has to have a validating performance record that God accepts for us to have a relationship with him and for us to be in his presence forever. And the only one who's ever accomplished a validating performance record before the face of God is the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. It is ridiculous for us to assume that we can conjure up or accomplish or achieve or make happen some kind of righteousness that will satisfy the absolute purity and holiness of God who tells us in the book of Habakkuk that he cannot look upon sin. He cannot look upon it. It separates us from God. And so we see immediately that Christ himself kept the law for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the gospel upholds the law by demonstrating that law-breaking is so very serious that it brings death and judgment and that law-keeping is so fundamental that no one can pass through judgment without being kept on their behalf. The law is upheld in Christ's life and his death, not nullified. The law is fulfilled in Christ's death and in Christ's life and therefore is validated, not, as it were, invalidated. And so Paul would say outside faith in Christ, the law, when we allow it to speak truly and fully, is both beautiful and terrible. I would love to be able to tell you that I could keep the law. If I could keep the law of God, what a life that would be. It's a beautiful thing. And once you become a Christian, the law no longer becomes a terror. It no longer is terrible because Christ fulfilled it for you. And it becomes beautiful and your heart is enraptured by it. You so desire to live that way in obedience to the Father. And so Christ... Because of his fulfillment of God's law on our behalf does not nullify the law in the Christian life. Christ imputes his righteousness to us. But Paul would say outside of faith in Christ, 
It can be, the law can be both beautiful and terrible. And we see there someone who forgives freely and blesses their enemies is unfadingly generous, pure in thought as well indeed, and so the kind of person he would love to be friends with. It's a beautiful portrait of what humanity could and should be. But it's also a terrifying standard because every day in every way we fail to meet it. We fail. We fail. Now I know people don't like to hear that, but it's truth. So if you're obeying the law in order to be saved, you've got to do one of two things. There are really only two options for you. And the first one is you've got to change the law. You've got to make it easier to meet the requirements. You want your commands to be limited and achievable. You don't want to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to not drink alcohol, and you want to go to church all the time, and you want to keep the Sabbath better than anybody else. But that law, that is not meeting the requirements. That is the heart and soul of legalism. You lower the bar, which is what the Pharisees did. They added to the law of God 612 commandments. And if you kept these commandments, and some of them were just silly, some of them were just common sense living, but they had all of these laws and they actually lowered the standards because they made it achievable in their own minds that they could do it. So either you lower the standards, lower the bar, change the law, bring it down to where we can possibly obey it, or be crushed by it. You can be crushed by the law because you know you cannot meet its requirements. You will either hate yourself because you fail, self-loathing, or, like Luther, you will come to hate God because you cannot meet his requirements. That is what Luther said. Luther said, when I came to understand the righteousness of God, what I thought the righteousness of God, of God was, was what God required of me, what God demanded. And Luther said, I hated the righteousness of God. I hated a God who would demand something I can't do, I can't fulfill. And so Luther would constantly go to his father confessor, confessing his sins, and then when he would get up to leave, he'd get about two steps down the hall and then remember 10 or 1,500 more sins he had committed, and he would wear that guy out. Why? He couldn't get his conscience cleansed. But when Luther understood the righteousness God demands is the righteousness he freely gives to the empty hand of faith, and Luther says, when I got that, when I understood that, his tower experience, he, was, he said it was like I was born anew or born again. And that's the reason why the gospel has not lit some of you up. That's the reason why the gospel has not really come home to you in its power and in its uh, uh, effectiveness and in its ability to keep producing you such deep zeal and gratitude and hunger for, and thirst for righteousness and a desire to live to please him. It's because you're still trying to live up. And rather than live up, give up. <laughs> you can't. You won't. No one ever has except Jesus. So, whichever you do, if you try to change the law or if you're crushed by the law, 
you will nullify the law. Only the gospel allows us to recognize and uphold the perfect standards of the law because we know that one law matters enough to God for it to bring death, but we also know that it no longer means our death. We don't need to ignore the law we cannot keep or be crushed by the law we cannot keep. We are free to have a right respect for the moral absolutes and to care deeply about justice. We can be secure in ourselves, non-judgmental toward others, forgiving to those who wrong us and not crushed by our own flaws and failings. You see, the only way you can ever let the law do its work in your being of uncovering, exposing your sin, and driving you to Christ, the only way that that can happen is, is for you to be able to see how deeply flawed and messed up we are according to God's standard. You know, the way I look at it, every person I meet and the guy I look at at the mirror in the morning is deeply flawed. Every person. And the need is overwhelming. But only the gospel gives you the confidence only the gospel gives you the courage to really take a look at yourself and to really see how far short we fall. And it causes our hearts to rise up in rejoicing. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the law for me. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see me as this colossal failure. He doesn't get disgusted with me. He doesn't tell me, quit bothering me. Just go on, I'm done with you. Why not? Because he sees me through the beauty and the glory and the suitability and the attractiveness of Jesus because I'm in union with him and his righteousness is mine as much as if I did it myself. If you don't have that undergirding you, you're a fake. You're a hypocrite. You're not real. You're not authentic. What gives you authenticity is to stare in the face what God requires and to humbly be broken before it and recognize I will never be that way till God makes me that way. But in the meantime, I can live in his presence and enjoy him and worship him and long to be with him and to long to be with God's people. Why? Because Christ's law is mine. Law keeping is mine. He is mine, and I am his. I am my beloved's. Now, Paul doesn't stop there because he knows who he's talking to, and he knows that the big breakthrough probably hadn't been accomplished yet. And so Paul keeps talking, as Paul always does. But I was thinking about how Christians regard the law, and one of my favorite quotations comes from an old hymn uh, by John Newton, he says this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. The law, when we are in Christ, becomes beautiful to us. It's not a burden. It's not an onus. It's not a a burden upon our back. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so that's how we begin 
to see, I got one more, to see the law by Christ fulfilled. I already did that one, didn't I? Somebody needs to get organized up here. All right. To run to work the law commands. The gospel gives me feet and hands. The one requires that I obey. The other does power convey. That's what we're talking about. The, the gospel doesn't invalidate the law. It validates it. It doesn't nullify it. It establishes it in its perfect role. And so Paul, in this passage, has made the great claim of justification by faith. A faith that excludes boasting. A faith that upholds the law. And now he calls two witnesses to support his case. Abraham and David. Now, Father Abraham is huge in the Jewish world and in the life of Israel. He's the father of the faithful. He's the, the one that they look to as the one who pleased God by offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. And so uh, everybody in the audience that was listening to Paul at this point, which were probably Jewish people who had converted to Christianity but needed to shed some of the Judaism they brought in with them. And so Paul is going to talk about Abraham here for a minute, and he's going to talk about David, King David who were both regaled and held in the highest esteem. And so, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? And David says the same thing. This is the masterstroke. Abraham was the father of the Jews. The nation of Israel began when God promised Israel's ancestor, Abraham, that he would make his descendants into a great nation living in a God-provided, given land, blessed by God. And David was the greatest king of the Jews under whom the nation of Israel reached the Old Testament high watermark. And Paul, throughout chapters 1 through 3 in Romans, has been opposing nationalistic, works righteousness uh, Jews. So who would bo both the fa father founder and the model king agree with? Would they agree with Paul or would they agree with the Judaizers or the Jews? The first possibility is that Abraham had nothing to boast about. The first possibility is that Abraham was justified by works. Verse 2, that Abraham shows us that saving faith equals obedience. And if this were the case, Paul continues, then the logical conclusion is that Abraham had something to boast about. If I contribute to my salvation, then I have something to boast about. I have, a I have a place to stand. I have smuggled in works righteousness through the back door and stand before God saying, well, I had faith and they didn't. Therefore, that's meritorious for me. And God saw my faith and said, you deserve to be right with me. You deserve my salvation. But Paul says, no. If faith equals obedience then who are, the we who are saved would be able to boast before God and others for we would be the real authors of our own salvation. We did it the old-fashioned way. We earned it. But at this point, Paul throws us his hands up at the impossibility of such a conclusion because surely even Abraham could not boast before God. 
The picture of Abraham standing before God and boasting about what he did, telling God all the ways in which he had obeyed, surely no one can do this. And that's what Paul is saying. And indeed, Scripture proves that that in the fact that Abraham had nothing to boast about. Verse 3. The verse introduces us to an extremely point, important word for the whole of chapter 4, and it is the Greek word logizomai. Logizomai. We get uh, the word count or credit from that word. This is an accounting term meaning to count as, to credit something, uh, to confer a status that was not there before. And so logizdomai is a word Paul uses in verse 3, verse 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, 22, and 23, and 24 as the word count. So it's a huge word. What does he mean by it? Well, one way we could possibly understand this term is, for example, let's say that I bought a house, or excuse me, I rented a house, and after living in that particular house for six months, I decided I'm going to ask the owner if I can purchase the house. And so I decided to buy the house. And uh, up to that point, I had been making payments, and they were not credited to me. They counted as rent. I make payments that are rent, but if a decision is made to buy, then those past rental payments are now counted as mortgage payments. A new status is granted to those payments. That's exactly how Paul is using this word count. And in verse 3, quoting from Genesis 15:6, says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. What in the world does that mean? Uh... Is it not merely that faith results in righteousness? Though it is true that if we believe God exists and that he deserves our obedience and worship, then out of that will flow some type of living we hope is righteous. Nor is it that Abraham's faith was itself a form of righteousness, meriting or deserving of God's favor and blessing. No, this is something much more. Faith counts as righteousness. It means that God treated Abraham as though he was living a righteous life. His faith was not righteousness, but God counted it as if it were. Douglas Moo, a Lutheran commentator on Romans, said this, If we compare other verses in which the same grammatical construction is used as in Genesis 15:6, we arrive at the conclusion that the crediting of Abraham's faith as righteousness means to account him a righteousness that does not inherently belong to him. Abraham was not in himself righteous, perfect and blameless, but God treated him as though he were. It is possible to be loved and accepted by God while we ourselves are at the same time sinful and imperfect. Luther put it this way, Christians are simul ustus et peccator, at the same time both righteous and sinful. But how do we know Abraham? was credited with righteousness before God. I think Abraham knew more about the gospel than we give him credit for. And here's why. In Genesis 15, 
Verse 6, which we've already talked about, that Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness to him. Something happened in Genesis 15 that was amazing. God instructed Abraham through these visitors. There was a, a, a theophany and a pre-incarnate appearance of God in Christ. Um, but what happened was uh, Abraham was instructed to take animals, cut them in two, to make an aisle between the animals. And what was then enacted was what is called a covenantal oath or a covenant ratification. And generally, in the ancient Near East, when people entered into covenant with one another as a treaty, uh, the suzerain, the conquering king, would enter into a covenant with the vassal, the servant, and the king would say, I promise to provide you everything that I've said today, and I will walk between these animals, indicating that if I do not provide you what I promised, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And so then the vassal himself would also walk between the animals and say, if I don't obey what you, the conquering king, says, then may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And so Abraham does this. He knows what's going on. He lives this kind of world. He's oriented to what's going on. He understands that this is a covenant ratification. But notice in Genesis 15, only God, as a smoking torch and a lamp, walks between the animals. Abraham never does. Have you ever thought about that? That's because Jesus himself not only kept covenant for us, but he walked between the animals to receive the curse of the covenant for us. And therefore, even in the Old Testament, we get a glimpse of what Christ must do to save us. He received, not only did he perform covenant obedience and kept the law for us, but he also walked between the animals. Abraham never walked between the animals. Why? Because he would fail. And so God is indicating through that process what it cost for Abraham to be redeemed. And the proof of this interpretation is Romans 4, 5, and it's remarkably striking statement that God is a God who justifies what kind of people? Ungodly? Wicked? Does that sound counterintuitive to anyone? Now we would say, we'd like to write it this way, God justifies people who come to the conclusion that they've done the best they can and they hope that God will accept them. No. God justifies the wicked while you are still wicked. Here's the truth. When you received your credited righteousness, you are still wicked. Justification and credited righteousness are therefore the same thing. To be justified is to receive credited righteousness. This is what Luther meant by calling it the passive righteousness or the alien righteousness, which theologians call imputed righteousness. And as Paul explains in verse 4, our righteousness is either or merited by our works or credited without regard to them. And when someone is given money, it's either the result of his work, that is wages, or it's nothing to do with work, a gift. Wages are not credited. 
given freely because there's something that is owed and obligated. If salvation is not a gift, then God is obliged to save us just as your employer is obliged to pay you when you work. And that, of course, runs against the whole tenor of the Bible, including Genesis 15, 6. But that brings us to our final point. Well, we haven't talked about David yet, have we? We'll talk about uh, David. What did I do with David? <laughs> well, I'm perfectly happy to talk about him. Look at David. He speaks almost in the same way when addressing these same issues. If you look with me in the text in Romans chapter 4, notice just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David, that comes from Psalm 32. And David, as we know, was a great king, but he was a flawed king. And we know that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And we know, like a mobster, he set up a hit on her husband, Uriah. So David was anything but a unflawed, beautiful record of righteousness. And yet he understood that through the atonement, as Nathan the prophet confronted him, he understood that through the uh, atonement, he was redeemed and his sins were not counted against him. So, what is saving faith? And this will be our final point. Now, if you look up faith in a theological dictionary, it will give you a very formal definition that faith is notitia, a census, and uh, fiducia. A census, uh, notitia means that you understand faith means trusting. You understand the definition of faith as it were. A census means you agree that that definition is right. And you agree that that is the right way to go. And fiducia is trust. But there is a functional definition of faith. And we're going to talk about saving faith. In contrast to the model faith equals obedience, Paul gives us the formula. Faith equals trust in God's saving provision. In Romans 4 5, we are told that saving faith consists of the ending of one kind of trust, and the beginning of another kind of trust. First, a saved person does not work. This cannot mean that a saved person disregards the law. It must therefore mean that the saved person no longer trusts in obedience as a way to be saved. A Christian is one who stops working to be saved, not one who stops working altogether. And so, here we see the beautiful truth of what saving faith is. And it's a glorious truth. Uh, well, I'll continue. Even though I lost what I had here, I'll continue. I don't really need it. This is the point I want to make to you. Let's say... I remember growing up uh, as a Southern Baptist, and I remember in my early 20s, 
I was trained and equipped to become an evangelist. And I went door to door, knocking on doors in a city, asking people if I could talk to them about what it means to have a relationship with God. And my question came from a Presbyterian named D. James Kennedy, and it was simply this, if you were to die tonight, <laughs> if you were to die tonight, and you were to be brought to the gates of heaven, I said, God forbid, but if you were, you were to be brought to the gates of heaven and you were to be asked the question, what right do you have to enter my heaven? Let's say, well, uh, you said to have faith, I have faith, therefore you owe me heaven. That's salvation by works. Because that's not talking about the object of faith, it's just talking about the amount of faith. Or let's say that I'll do the best I can, I'll try to live up the best I can, and I'll hope for grace that it'll make up the difference. Also wrong. Or let's say that I believe it's necessary to have faith, but if I remain faithful to the end, that's faith plus works. The only appropriate answer is, I have no right to ever enter heaven. I have no right to ever be in the presence of a God who loves me and gave himself for me. How in the world could I ever speak of that in the presence of God? And so, as a result of that, that person said, I look outside of myself and I have transferred trust from anything I can do and reliance upon anything I have done and simply trusting in who Jesus is and what he's done for me. That is saving faith. It's a transfer of trust. I'll never uh, forget uh, preaching in Louisiana and there was this woman who actually worked for Campus Crusade for years. She grew up Roman Catholic. And I was preaching a mess, simple message on the gospel like this. And she had the most puzzled look in her eyes ever. And she said, on her way out the building, I noticed and I said, did I say something that uh, puzzled you or caused you to question? She said, yes, you did. She said, I never, ever considered that faith is something opposite of work. She said, I've never really even understood. She said, even in my Christian life, everything I have done has been to please God so that he will accept me into his heaven. And though nobody ever said it out loud, I think that day that woman was saved. Kind of like, what's his name, John Wesley, who was a missionary to America and failed miserably because he wasn't a Christian? kind of hard to be a missionary if you're not a Christian for Christianity but that woman who had was a wonderful person enjoyed her delightful but it just dawned upon her that she had been relying upon being a good person and that is the worst deception of any kind and so to conclude why do we boast why do we boast? Do we have any validation? In no, the only thing we can boast in, the only thing we can glory in, is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. Now, 
In conclusion, last thing I will say is we're saved by grace. And that's what I've been telling you. We could put it all under the rubric of grace. Lewis Smedes says in his book, Shame and Grace, the following. Our struggle with shame leaves us with the nagging question, is there a viable alternative to the shame-induced ideas of secular culture and graceless religion? <coughs> is there some kind of third way? A way of healing the disgrace of shame. Here's the good news. Because it offers the one thing we need most to be accepted without regard to whether we are acceptable. Grace stands for gift. It is the gift of being accepted before we become acceptable. The surest cure, the gift of being accepted gives us, or the surest cure for the feeling of being unacceptable as a person, is the, the discovery that we are accepted by the grace of the one whose acceptance to us matters most in the universe. Grace overcomes shame not by uncovering an overlooked cachet of excellence in our hearts, but simply accepting us, the whole of us, without regard to our beauty or ugliness, our virtue or our vices. We are accepted wholesale, accepted with no possibility of being rejected, accepted once and accepted forever, accepted at the ultimate depth of our being. We are given what we have longed for in every nook and nuance of every relationship we have ever had. We are ready for grace when we are bone tired of our struggle to be worthy and acceptable. And after we've tried too long to earn the approval of everyone important to us, we are ready for grace. When we are tired of trying to be the person somebody, somewhere, sometime convinced us that we had to be, we're ready for grace. When we may hear in our hearts the ultimate reassurance, we are accepted, accepted by grace, accepted in the beloved. Are you bone tired? That's what grace is. And that is what we need. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you for your word. It is certainly powerful and certainly convinces us of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray today that people who are confused about this matter, will begin to see the light that though they have tried with all of their might to live to a standard that is beyond them, that they can give up the struggle of trying to be something they can never be apart from Jesus. Lord, I pray you'll forgive us for trying to find our identity in horizontal things and not find it in vertical things, which are you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give us people who've been freed from our shame, freed from our guilt, and living in joy. May we give out of the abundance of our hearts gratitude for the unspeakable gift. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.